passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the end of the line. It's John Pollock, Waiting, and WH Park with you for the third consecutive day. After 19 G1 shows, we have our winner. WH has gone through a marathon of re- of live wrestling, I should say, this past weekend. WH, are you still standing at this late hour? Um, yes, barely. <laughs> I, I, I'm still on a high because, thankfully... Every wrestling show I went to today was quite exciting, to be quite quite honest. You know, I didn't think I was gonna like seeing people get you know hit with concrete blocks or light tubes or being thrown into a box full of saw blades, but it, it was quite interesting. I'll say that. Now, way for us on the Eastern Time Zone, the G one final was starting at two a.m. Eastern, and I really debated whether I was going to try and watch this one live or not. But I thought in the end, if I started, I wasn't going to finish. I I would end up finishing it and then be a zombie for this show. So I ended up watching it uh, Sunday morning. What did you do as the one with the more uh, odd sleeping hours? Yeah, uh, I actually started at 2 a.m. I mean, on the East Coast, it's sort of a weird uh, time frame because I think 2 a.m. isn't that late, especially for somebody like me. However, to make it to the end of the show, it was a bit of a challenge. So I actually stopped short of uh, the semi-main and then I took a a few hours of sleep and then I woke back up to rewatch to watch the rest of it. So let's uh, get right into things here with this uh, final Night of the G1, the matches were announced just a few hours prior. And uh, WH, how was the commute for you going from the stardom show you attended into uh, making it on time here for the start of the Budokan show? So the stardom show started around 11.45 a.m. at Corican Hall. Uh, it finished around uh, 2 o'clock. So yeah, I, and then G1 was going to start at 3 o'clock at Budokan. So um, as soon as this... The, the main event finished. Uh, me and a couple other friends, we walked to Budokan uh, Hall. It's about a 20-minute walk. We stopped at a convenience store to, to load up on drinks and some snacks on the way. And I got there maybe 10 minutes before bell time, and I met Jojo and his wife, Christine, and they, they had my ticket for me, and we went in together. We had excellent seats once again. I, I really want to say, before we continue any further, I really want to say thank you to Jojo for buying all the tickets, not only for myself, but for the, our contingent of wrestling fans that came for the G1. He also 
helped me acquire my tickets for Osaka. So I don't think I could have done any of the, any of the live shows that I was able to attend without Jojo's help. So big thank you to him. Anytime, um, anytime then, you're in a big group, you want to have that that ticket broker friend of yours that's going to coordinate all the ticket buying. It's always a big help. It, it is. Um, so yeah, the commute was fine. Uh, I got there in time. Then after the G1, went back to Corrigan to watch Big Japan Pro Wrestling. So uh, a little tired. That's a lot of walking though in, in, in like 35 degree, 38 degree uh, heat. So with 100% humidity. And a question I didn't ask you on the prior two shows was, did you get a sense of a lot of people that had traveled and flown over for this final weekend? Uh, what was kind of the audience makeup when it came to uh, a traveling crowd for the G1? Uh, I saw a lot of people who came in from outside the country at these shows. Um, and I think a lot of them were doing the same thing I was doing today. So I saw a lot of crossover from stardom to uh, the G1, not so much back to big Japan. But there was a large contingent of, uh, of foreigners who had traveled from Europe, who traveled from the United States, from Canada, from the UK to come to the G1. It, it almost felt like it was like Wrestle Kingdom season, yeah. to be quite honest. Well, the show started off with a six-man tag with uh, Togi Makabe, Michael Elgin, and Tomoki Honma taking on Yuji Nagata, Shota Amino, and Ayato Yoshida, who you may have seen on some of the Lionsgate cards that New Japan World has aired uh originally from the uh, the Kayentai Dojo. So he was uh, an interesting add-on to this uh, show in the opener. Uh, the crowd really got into Honma, hitting one of the uh, Kokeshis onto Umino. Nagata came in, fired up on all three. And then Makabe was sent off the apron from a kick. Elgin came in with Nagata. And the kind of lone spotlight on Yoshida was when he was tagged in with Makabe and got to drop him after several shoulder block attempts. And then Makabe just beat him down and pinned him after the King Kong knee drop. Seven minutes, 13 seconds for, you know, uh, I thought a pretty standard opener that the audience got into uh, various spots. Uh, let's start with you, Wei. Yeah, I just thought this was a bit of a, an early exhibition without that much to really sink your teeth into. Uh, I felt uh, curious about Yoshida. It was my first time seeing him. Although I didn't feel like he had too much of a chance to shine here. I thought Umino kind of had more of that and, and looked to be the more impressive one of the two, at least in this match. Yeah, the thing with Yoshida is that um, many people think that he's going to eventually sign with New Japan Pro Wrestling via like the relationship that they have with uh, Takamichinoku, who's his trainer, because he's from the Kaintai Jojo. Um, a lot of support in my section for Yoshida. A lot of people calling his name. Uh, a lot of them are familiar from his time uh, in Lionsgate. And I think there is a kind of like buzz about him eventually joining the company. So keep an eye out for him. Next up was a Toa Hanare and Bad Luck Fale. Hanare immediately goes after him before the bell even rings. And Fale uh, catches him. He goes for the grenade early that Hanare is able to block and hits a flying shoulder tackle. Fale comes back, lands the grenade, and then follows up with the Bad Luck Fall and pinned Hanare in a minute 50. And I'll say, if you're going to go with Fale as a monster, I, I think that this is the way to do it. Short, dominant matches with Fale. Uh, this kind of booking doesn't really work in the G1. Uh, but uh, th this just kind of established Fale as this big monster, which maybe some people will be negative on if he's coming out of this uh, tournament with a, a renewed big push. Um, but I had no problem with just a quick win here for Fale. Way. I didn't either. I, I know WH, you and I, when we did that primer, you were really looking forward to seeing how Folly was going to fare, 
now that he, you know, had lost a lot of weight. And I'll say at the end of this tournament, he didn't really come out of it, in my opinion, all that strong. And we'll kind of get to that as we round up our uh, best and worst of at the end of this podcast. Um, so, you know, a match like this just uh, meant to heat him back up. I don't think it's such a bad idea. Uh, Hanare, I, I think, uh, you know, I always th- thought that he might be a good cruiserweight addition to that Tongan firing squad team. Uh, but I guess they would have uh, the Bone Soldier join them up with them later on this evening. Yeah, I thought the less folly you see in a match, the better. So I like this match. And I'll, I'll be I'll be fair. He looked good because I think it kept it short. He just dominated him. But I, I really like Tohonare. I think he's got a bright future ahead of him. And he he looked good when he was able to shine against folly. But yeah, you know. A minute, less, less than two minutes, perfect. Perfect time for a bad luck quality match. Yeah, I, I've got to say, one of my one of my little things that I, I start to enjoy that, you know, pro wrestling as a whole, you get these, su- like, long, long cards. I really like just having a quick match in there out of nowhere that just is a nice way that moves the pace along. So, anyway, I, I had nothing to complain about with this one. Hiroki Goto and Yoshihashi against Taichi and Takashi Azuka. Taichi came out first with Miho Abe and was followed then by Goto and Yoshihashi. And I was getting excited. I was like, oh, maybe we won't even get Azuka in this match. But he showed up from behind, attacking them with a chair with his Hannibal Lecter mask on. And then Kevin Kelly brought up how all these people were pushing for Taichi to get into the G1 this year. And I just, I learned that the Venn diagram of Kevin Kelly friends and John Pollock friends does not intersect because I was not aware of this massive campaign to get Taichi into the G1. WH, was I, uh, was I missing out on a big movement that was going on? I, I don't think so, John. I, I, I think that uh, if you asked, if you took a random sampling of like, say, 10 Japanese fans, do you think Taichi should be in the G1? Maybe, maybe two of them would say yes, but they're probably like big like cosplay nerds. So they're, they're, their opinion really doesn't count. Perhaps it's more more the fact that, you know, the guy seemed to be breaking out as a a heavyweight earlier on in this year and then didn't really seem to do a whole lot with that momentum going forward. But maybe earlier on this year, a lot of people thought he might have been primed for one of those spots. Well, he they explained, you know, he had the greatest matches of his career against Tetsuya Naito and Hiroshi Tanahashi, which to me was a quite the endorsement of Naito and Tanahashi and not as much Taichi, who has not shown anything resembling those matches since. Well, it's like that argument. Oh no, Follies had great matches with Nakamura, Okada, <laughs> Tanahashi. Uh, yeah, of course he would. So Taichi removes Azuka's mask, so now he can bite Yoshihashi. He ripped off the shoulder tape, was biting his shoulder. He then bit the elbow of Goto. Yoshihashi then was delivering chops while Taichi came back with leg kicks, and then there was a uh, buzzsaw kick. To the point that Taichi, in landing this buzzsaw kick, fell over. He lost his balance from the impact of his own kick. And then finished Yoshihashi with a last ride powerbomb, stacking him 8 minutes, 5 seconds. So, the revenge of Taichi for being overlooked in this G1 was uh, the theme of this match. Yeah, overall, I, f- I found this match a little boring. I mean, uh, I like Izuka's gimmick. I think he has a place on these undercard matches, but I don't need to see that much of it. And I thought I got a little too much of it in this match. I don't think Goto really had any presence here. Uh, it felt like a bit of a, a, a break for him. 
And I would say outside of the finish, if this whole thing was an attempt to remind us of who Taichi was, I didn't feel like I got to see that much of him either. Yeah, I felt it was just filler, but I gotta say, I was kind of intrigued when Zika's music hit, and I thought, oh, Zika's coming out. I thought there might have been a good chance that he might go over to the English commentary table and attack Chris and rip <laughs> off his clothes. You're right. That I'm actually surprised now that they didn't do that. What a <laughs> well, may, maybe in the future, if Chris if Chris gets uh, booked more regularly oh. on the commentary table, he's got to put his foot down once because if he says yes to it once, he says yes to it forever. As exactly we, as we saw with it with Azuka forever. Uh, Juice Robinson and David Finley took on Cody and Hangman Page. Uh, Cody just announced for this. Uh, I, I didn't even know he was coming in for this show. Uh, but Kelly, uh, Kevin Kelly explains uh, the left hand of Juice. It's all fine now. Don't worry about the cast. He pretty much just ended the story of the hand that it's completely done now. That story. It's over. Uh, Chris added that in Dusty's 125 times wrestling in Japan, he never got to do what Cody's doing here. Wrestling at Budokan Hall as a trivia note. Cody was total heel in this match. He spit his gum at Finley, who chased him around, which may I add that if I am a prestigious venue and I am to a point not going to allow you balloons, I'm sure as hell not allowing gum to be spit as my prestigious venue is just uh, absolutely desanitized here with these damn Americans coming in with their, their cheap heat spots. It depends where that gum lands. Well, it landed. Uh, it landed on the ground here. Yeah, I think he missed Finley. In the ring or outside? Uh, this was in the ring, I believe. Oh, well, they'll take that with them. I guess so. Also, a hazard to be doing all this stuff while chewing gum as well. I mean, it's a preventive measure. Cody needs to be taking care of himself during this very lucrative time for his career. Uh, it ended up being a trap because Finley chased after Cody, and then they double teamed uh, Finley on the floor. Juice got the tag. He hit this double cannonball after uh, placing Cody into the tree of woe and Hangman Page was seated in the corner. Finley then stops the crossroads, gets hit with a buckshot lariat. Juice comes in, uh, did this, you know, little uh, dusty battle of the jabs with Cody and Juice. And then he went for the pulp friction that Cody turned into Din's fire, pinning him at eight minutes and 57 seconds. For those that haven't seen that move, it's uh, Cody's version of the vertebraker and Cody then grabbed the United States title and said, I am sick of people, fans, and the wrestling media saying how Juice has improved when he's just a cheap imitation of Kyrie Sane. And I think to a U.S. audience, that would have got a huge reaction. I don't think the audience really reacted at all to this line, but uh, that's setting up our U.S. title match. So after all those Juice losses, this feels to me like this is going to be the Long Beach match. Cody going against Juice. I think it's a strong match for for an American audience. Uh, can you guys explain how exactly Juice is doing an impression of Kyrie Sane though? The, the pot, uh, he with the hat and I I mean it's a very loose it's kind of just it's down not, to the hat not, really. It's not, it's not a pirate hat. It's kind of. I mean, what what else do you use that hat for? I associate it with pirates. Hmm. I, I take it more as like one of those uh, kind of like Yankee Doodle type of things. But okay. Close enough. Like, I, I felt like it would have been more effective if he said that he was doing an impression of his dad, of Dusty. Because mm-hmm. I feel like he's probably more Dusty than Kyrie Sane. But okay, that's fine. I, I thought that's where the line was going to way. I thought the same thing, that he was going to be making it personal about his dad. But no, mm-hmm. went the other way. 
I, I like Cody versus Juice as a match for Long Beach. I think it means more to an American market. Anytime you have a, a, a it's really the only place I, I see Cody really doing that type of headlining role or a semi headlining role. Um, I thought this match was decent. You know, it, to me, like Cody being absent for about a month, I felt like Juice and Page through their runs in the G run had G one had kind of taken him over in terms of popularity. And Juice, I would say at this point, certainly feels like a much bigger star coming out of this and, and a bigger star than Cody, at least in Japan. But Cody just has such great presence and promo ability that it really doesn't take a whole lot for him to take that spotlight back back again. And he, he just did it with this post-match promo, I thought. How about you, WH? Well, I'm not a big fan of Cody Rhodes in, in New Japan because I don't think he, he I don't think he's ever adapted or acclimated well to the Japanese style. But that being said, he was quite over with the Japanese fans, so I, I, I got to give him that. Um, I thought this was kind of weird booking because, like, I thought the, the elite were the good guys now against the, the BC OG. So, but Cody's the heel here. And then Hagrid Page throughout the whole entire G1 pretty much became a very popular babyface to the Japanese fans. And now he's a heel here. So, like, this kind of, again, inconsistency just bothers me so i really didn't like what they did with page um that being said i i I suppose it's an intriguing match between juice and cody my big thing is that i hope from now on that this is the last we see of juice's Kyrie sane outfit and then he's going to get new gear coming uh september I, I feel like Cody's the type of wrestler who can't really help himself, but like act a little bit heelish, even though he knows that the team is supposed to be a babyface team. Now it doesn't work as well for Cody because I think he's just such a natural heel. So he probably still has to find that balance. Yeah. Like, it really threw me too, because w- whether they like it or not, like he's going into that all in show as a massive babyface, going after the NWA title. It's the way they've positioned it on being the elite that whether they like it or not, it's all to me, the same it's all the same thing now between New Japan and what they're doing at All In that it was kind of jarring for me that we just had Cody so far in the the heel role in this match. Like, it wasn't even subtle stuff. The Young Bucks and Marty Skrull then took on the Gorillas of Destiny and Taiji Ishimori. And Tangaloa comes out and goes to introduce the opponents who he calls uh, are on their farewell tour. And they're soon to be former Never Six-Man Champions. And then pretends to forget their names, so he has to ask the announcer to repeat their names for him, and he pretends not to know who these guys are. And then Tangaloa challenges them to make this a title match. Put those motherfuckers up. And Matt responds who they are. They're part of the greatest faction in New Japan, Bullet Club Elite, and they agree to make this a title match with Harold May at ringside, and he agrees. So we have a title match, an impromptu one. Starts off with... uh, you know, heat on Matt, and then Nick got a big hot tag, did a huge striking sequence against Tonga and uh, and Tangaloa. Uh, first really cool spot, we had a swanton onto Tamatonga, who was draped on the middle rope, and then a sliding German suplex by Ishimori as he slid to the floor and hit this perfectly. Uh, then we saw a handspring into the chicken wing. The Bucks applied double sharpshooters for a triple submission spot, but while Tamatonga was in a sharpshooter, he raked the eyes of Marty Skrull, who was the legal man in the uh, who was applying the chicken wing. Uh, Nick hit a corkscrew to the gorillas on the floor, and then Tamatonga made a blind tag that the Bucks did not see. 
and Tangaloa stops an indie taker by catching Nick with a power slam. Skrull goes to snap Tangaloa's fingers, but is stopped with the gun stun from the legal man, Tamatonga, who pins Skrull at 11 minutes and 26 seconds. Uh, post-match attack, the Bucks uh, ended up with uh, Matt taking the gun stun. Ape shit was hit to Nick, and then they tossed the titles onto the floor right in front of the very puzzled Harold May, who had to convey a look of shock. And this man just needs to be a non-on-screen character because he, I am calling this now, this will not end well. He is not, I can just tell from this man's reaction here. This guy was not designed to be on camera. And Tamatonga ended it by saying, we're going to destroy anyone with a belt, suck ass. So I don't know how far this non-swearing policy is really going from uh, winning these motherfucking titles to telling the camera to go suck ass. But we have our new Never six man champions, and they're doing the Naito gimmick where they're just going to disrespect the titles and not even carry them. Uh, Way, how did this come off? Well, first of all, I mean, I think to start off this segment, there seemed to be a whole lot of uh, uh, English speaking in front of this, uh, I would assume, largely Japanese audience. And I took that perhaps as another sign that New Japan are trying to cater more to that global audience now. Uh, but clearly, I mean, plenty of people there, WH, understood everything that was going on. Um, but I felt like I almost just saw, like, a Raw segment at the beginning of this match, including, you know, the general manager of the show uh, granting the title match, in albeit in, in much less uh, charismatic fashion than even a, a Page or Kurt Angle. Um, the match, I felt, was one of the weaker Bucks matches. It was fine, but I found, mm, I've kind of found G.O.D. a little boring on offense here, so... Uh, we'll see where this goes, but I'm kind of with you, John. Maybe not too big a fan of, of uh, so much um, Harold May on my TV. Yeah, I got to say, like, I, I, I'll i be honest. I really like this match as far as it being a, you know, a match involving Tamatonga and Tangaloa. I, I think I've, I've been consistent in saying that I like their tag matches, like on the undercards throughout this whole tour. Um, it's when Tamatonga is like having singles matches and there's a lot of you know, interference that I get really bored with. And I, I, I don't like quite like where his behavior is going. Cause it's really bizarre. Choking the fan littering on the, the, the train platform. It's, it's really strange, but his tag matches are good. And I, I like this match. Uh, I have to ask you from where I was sitting. So I'm in the upper levels and I'm just above where the announcing table is, where the, um, where the English commentator table is. So I can see like, if I lean over, I can see Kevin Kelly, Rocky Romero, and I can see Chris. And I can see that's where that's a section where Harold May is sitting. I don't know if he was there in the previous matches. Uh, I know he wasn't there after this match. So for me, it seems like they just kind of brought him out only to do this angle, to do what Way calls this kind of raw style angle. And I think Way hit it on the head. I think they're involving anything involving the Bullet Club is for is their idea of like expanding to catering to like the Western audience to that's part of their expansion. We have to give them angles. We have to give them Western style, what they think is Western style matches and booking. And I, I have to tell you, it does not get over very well uh, here. One, because of the language barrier Two, most fans don't want to see interference. And I think I've been very consistent about like saying that from a live perspective, this, this whole, like, uh, disqualifications, getting trying to get heat on Tabataga and Tangaloa and Battlelock Valley through this is is just not working. People don't want to see them anymore, which I think, you know, if we take them as a tag team, it's a shame. 
And if we take just Tangaloa having probably if, if Tangaloa is getting out of control and they get rid of him, they're probably going to get rid of Tangaloa as well, which is a shame because I think that guy's just going out there and trying to do his job the best as he can and be supportive of his like legit brother. So I like this match. I don't like Harold May being in here. I think maybe he got a taste of being on screen from his intro video within the shower and running into the ring. Maybe we should have sensed like the, the direness of the situation from that point, but I don't know where this is going. I'm not liking it. And a lot of people I know aren't liking this either. Yeah. I just, you know, we always say we have, we've got to see where it, where it ends up going, but I mean, it just feels like a broken record at times. I just wish at times as wrestling companies could pay attention to stuff that is really working versus stuff that how many times do we see, have we seen success of companies that have taken all of these, these ideas that we feel are going to capture non hardcore wrestling fans and like, look at world of sport. Like that thing has like tumbled in just weeks because they've, they have this weird identity of, well, we've got to grab non wrestling fans. So we're going to use stuff that all uh, WWE fans would be familiar with for the last 20 years. Meanwhile, you have 15 years of TNA's history of, of the outcome of what happens there. And conversely, this is at a time when I think people really underestimate the number of like quote unquote hardcore wrestling fans Versus there are just a lot of wrestling fans out there. Enough that you can do serious business just catering to wrestling fans that desperately want different, that want alternatives. And what audience are you necessarily attracting? But like this, it just feels like it's almost this mythical audience out there that you use these angles to attract that I question how many of those people are out there that are seeking this kind of stuff. WWE included. So anyway, that was uh, our six-man match. And we continue that with Kenny Omega. Oh, sorry. First, we had uh, Tetsuya Naito, Evil, Sonata, and Bushi taking on Minoru Suzuki, Zack Sabre Jr., Yoshinobu Kanemaru, and El Desperado. And uh, focus of the early part of the match was Naito and Suzuki standing off and trading strikes on the floor, and then they went after the arm of Naito uh, with Zack Sabre Jr. taking over as well and taking out Evil's left arm as well. Sonata was tagged in with Kanemaru, and he goes to put Kanemaru into the Paradise Lock, and El Desperado makes the save, but it appeared that Kanemaru wasn't aware that Desperado had saved him, so he just assumed he was in the Paradise Lock, and you had Desperado essentially like just push him and be like, just keep going, you're not in the, you're not in the lock here. So the match continued. There was a triple-seated dropkick uh, by the LAJ members to Kanemaru, and Suzuki rolled Naito into the ropes with a leg lock. Kanemaru took the whiskey and missed with Sonata that Kevin Kelly called a swig and a mist and applied the skull end, submitting Kanemaru 10 minutes, 41 seconds, and LIJ did their fist bump afterwards. I was kind of surprised, uh, Way, because I was expecting some kind of a larger angle coming out of this, some direction for Naito or even evil, uh, but there was, there was no Chris Jericho on this show and nothing really here. Like, they might do a Naito-Suzuki match in the fall, but there was nothing really that hit you over the head coming out of this one. Yeah, like I was a little surprised that they would have Suzuki pair off with Naito so hard in this match because, I mean, maybe I just have the Zack win on, on my mind from, uh, what was it, last night? Yeah. Where I, I felt like Naito would be really gunning for revenge after Zack. So I was surprised not to see that pairing kind of followed up on. Um, And I, I, I unlike you, I didn't really feel like there was much storyline built to in this match outside of maybe Suzuki Naito. Um, 
And that said, though, I mean, Suzuki is always just great fun to watch in any scenario, and that includes him beating up Young Lions after this match. Yeah, I felt the the person left out of the cult was Zack Sabre Jr. Like, it seems like Taichi's going to get the never title shot against uh, Goto. It, Code, Cody's going to get the U.S. title shot a- after Juice, even though, like, Zack, after beating both those guys, kind of, like, grab each belt and it seemed like he was going to be the next challenger for both those belts and then i agree with the way like after the naito match i thought maybe they're going to program something with him and zach but now it seems like they're moving towards naito and and uh and suzuki so i i don't know what the direction for saber is and it's really strange because like i think he's really hot coming off the g1 this year even though he like he finished really high he beat top guys in in the in the tournament and I think he's someone that they have to focus on. He's someone that they should focus on if they want to do the Western expansion. I think his style has a real appeal to wrestling fans. doesn't matter what country you're from. People get involved in his matches because they, they're intrigued by how good he is. So I don't know what they're thinking about with uh, Zack Sabre Jr. after this match. Yeah, I think he's going to get something big. It was just coming out of this show. I don't know what it is or when it's going to be. Because you're right. it was uh, He was not the focus uh, of this match. Kenny Omega, Chase Owens, and Yujiro took on Tomohiro Ishii, Toru Yano, and Jay White. So two of the people that beat Omega in the G1 on the, uh, on the chaos side. Uh, White tags out and unexpectedly tags in Yano, who was not ready to enter the match yet. There was lots of comedy here. Uh, Kenny Omega and Chase Owens were doing wishbones onto Yano, and it worked up to this big rowboat spot where they got uh, Peter to come in and dance in the middle before Omega kicked her out to the floor. And then Ishii was tagged in, and it was like the whole tone changed the second that Ishii was tagged in and wasn't going to be privy to any of this bullshit. Ishii blocked Owens' package pile driver. He won't go down from strikes, fires up, headbutts him back, and then finally takes Owens down with a lariat for a two count. And then there's a brain buster as Omega is held on the floor and Ishii gets the pinfall. Nine minutes, 41 seconds. Uh, the brain buster has been one of the most protected finishes throughout this whole G1. I think they've, you know, it's always been his finish, but they've made it a really big um, finish. I think coming out of the G1, heating up Ishii for that Omega match, which I think is going to be just a, there's going to be a ton of buzz for that match, which is kind of all you can hope for, for something like a King of Pro Wrestling, which I think is where, Many assume that's going to be. And then afterwards, Omega and Ishii had this face-off with Ishii getting right into his face and Jay White noting he's happy because this is what chaos should be, taking what you want. And it was almost like Jay White aligning himself with Ishii and kind of uh, directing the group away from Okada, who's off doing uh, his own thing. Uh, but Wei, how did this come off? I I really didn't like the comedy in this match. I've I, I that rowboat stuff, and then a, a lot of the other things that they were trying with Peter. To me, uh, really kind of missed the mark. At least watching from home, um, I feel like Omega tends to do best with his comedy when he's in there with the Bucks, and I don't think he nearly has the uh, amount of chemistry as he would with uh, some of these guys. Guys like Jay White and Ishii being in there for that just kind of felt really off too. I would say for for JY too, I think you know as a so, single star, he he was really pushing that that chaos storyline hard. Uh, that so much so that it, you know I I don't like seeing him uh, try to incorporate himself in these matches where he really just kind of feels like a side character uh, rather than a supposed leader. Um, so I, I I didn't really enjoy this match all that much for those reasons. Uh, that said, I I found a highlight here to be Chase Owens who. 
I, I think was given a great deal of shine against Tomohiro Ishii. He's been a very solid performer in all of these outings, and he, you know, he's kind of the type of guy who doesn't have the look or the charisma for a bigger role. So really, like, kind of like a Yoshihashi of the Bullet Club, which kind of makes me a fan. WH? Oh, I hated this match. I hated everything involving Peter. I I don't, like, seriously, this is this is completely incongruous to what I think New Japan is to what I think it should be. Like, her involvement does, like, her having a bigger role is not going to sell a single ticket. It's not going to s- get a single subscriber to New Japan World. Uh, so I just think it's it's dumb. It, it's embarrassing for the company. That that being said, um, I like the stuff with Omega and uh, Ishii. But, like, I'm going to have to disagree with you, Way. I thought Chase Owens got too much on Ishii. Like, Chase Owens' role in this company is to be a jabroni. He is to put over all the top stars finishers. He's there to put over if someone has a new new uh, submission hold, he's there to put it put it over. He's a great finishing guy. He's a great guy to have a finishing sequence with, but you know he's gonna lose. But he's gonna make himself look good. He's gonna make the other guy look good. Here's the problem I had Ishii hit him with a clothesline. He no sold an Ishii clothesline and then he hit Ishii with a clothesline, and Ishii bumped for him. I was, I lost my mind at that. I'm like, who the fuck booked this? And I thought, okay, I've got to say, I think that Omega and the Bucks book a lot of their own stuff, like how the matches are laid out. And I think they went that, hey, can you, you get a bump for Chase. And Ishii's probably like, oh, whatever, I'm getting a title shot. Okay, I'll bump for this guy. I'm sorry. There, in no universe should Tomo Ishii, Tomohiro Ishii, uh, have have to bump for Chase Owens' clothesline, and there is no universe where Chase Owens should no sell a Tomohiro clothesline. Just, just, just offended me on every level. Wow! So some some heavy, heavy criticism of this six man. I lo- I looked at this match more so as I was just glad that Kenny Omega had essentially a night off here because this is the first time uh, in two years where he didn't have to do that insane turnaround from the the B block final to the next day's final um so i think by the end of it you got to where you wanted with the tease of omega and ishii as the next major uh title program but i also feel that new japan has to figure out what they want this product to be are do you want to be uh edgy and 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 present like all the swearing and you've got peter out there in a thong or or do you not want that i think that they very much have this this is the way that all these characters have been presented for so long. The swearing is really not toned down at all. And th- in fact, I, I notice it even more now. Um, so I think they just have to make that decision as a company. Are we going to export this as is, or are we going to make actual changes um, to present this? If we believe that there is actually, um, this is a family product for, for people, which m- maybe people don't think new Japan is in the U S that this is for um, adult males that, are into all the swearing and it works for a lot of these characters and we're just going to keep it as is. Kazuchika Okada, Rapongi 3K took on Kushida, Rey Mysterio and pro wrestler Sengoku Enbu, which uh, WH this was a video game sponsor for the G1, is that right? I think it's like the the KIZN company yeah. is is the the sponsor. So this is like their character um if you come in, if you coming into uh, Budokan Hall, so Budokan Hall is like 
I think I said before, it's like the grounds are like that of a castle, like a traditional Japanese castle. So as you come up to the Budokan Hall, you pass through all these tents that had like promotional videos for, or promotional materials for like uh, New Japan World and for the uh, My Dad is a Cockroach movie. There was like a, a booth for that. And for this uh, game, like that, um, you know, Taguchi is playing the main character from it, I guess. So the match began. Ray came out to a really big reaction. The whole crowd was chanting 619. Kushida's entrance, he came out on a legit hoverboard way. I mean, was this legit? Is this is this what the kids call hoverboards? Like the, those things with the one wheel deal? Uh, this looked like it was as legit as you're going to get with a hoverboard. He he was not hovering above the ground. There was there was a wheel in between. Anyway, I thought it looked really stupid. Wow. Well, there you go. The match began, and Okada wants to start with Ray, and they're going at it, and there was a head scissors to the floor by Ray, and when they landed, he remained on Okada's shoulders, and then Arana sent Okada back into the ring, and he missed with a 619, and it seemed the only thing this crowd wanted was that damn 619. That's the only thing they wanted out of this match. Okada goes after the mask of Enbu, and the announcers were just having fun, pretending like they didn't know this was Ryusuke Taguchi. So that became kind of their comedy throughout the whole match. At one point, Rocky Romero reminds us of when he unmasked when he was Black Tiger. And Kevin Kelly says, why would they ever have covered your face? And Kelly then notes, well, the mask did look cool. And Romero said, yeah, the paydays were actually pretty good as well when I was under a mask. They built up to Enbu being tagged. He hit reverse hip attacks all around. Kelly accuses him of stealing moves. And then he applies the ankle lock to Show. And then another hip attack is caught. And Show hits a German suplex. Enbu countered the Rainmaker with a hip attack. Tags in Ray. He's in uh, with Rapongi 3K. And they double team Ray. They go for the 3K that Ray turns into a Tornado DDT to Yo. And then a Hurricane Rana, as Sho clearly forgot he was supposed to land on the ropes and had to correct his, his fall. And the double 619 is set up, and Okada stops it from happening. And this place just hated this guy. They're like, this asshole. Kushida and Enbu then take them out with double somersault dives onto the floor. So Ray is left with Yo, finally hits the 619, and the springboard splash. He wins 12 minutes, 27 seconds. I think this was everything you, you could hope for for just like a fun little six-man tag. This this was hardly a show that had uh, a ton of great wrestling on the undercard. It was just a lot of like tag matches. And this one to me connected the best. I thought so too. Mm-hmm. Out of all the undercard multi-mans, this was to me the only one that uh, I felt kind of very ha- happy to, to watch. I thought it was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, all the Sengoku stuff... Uh, I, I think it, I understand it for, for promotional purposes. I think in the end it did help add a little bit of intrigue into this match. Although I feel like it, it, it was rather unfortunate they decided to uh, do this at the same time as having Ray's uh, match in, in, in Japan as well. Because it kind of took away the specialness of, of his appearance to me. Uh, although I'll say seeing him in there with Okada, man, they look fantastic together. There's this one spot where like Ray gets on top of Okada's shoulders for an electric chair within the ring they fall out of the ring with ray still in his electric chair that i thought was particularly impressive so that's a match i really hope that they get to before ray is done with new japan um okada a bit of news to announce but but uh at, at the end of the uh, press conference 
uh, after the, the show today. He announced that he is parting ways with Gato as his second. So uh, there appears to be some type of evolution in his character, whether or not he's continuing this kind of, uh, uh, you know, red haired balloon um, um, releasing man. He did come out with his uh, old Rainmaker jacket, though, on this show. He's going to get Paul Heyman. Well, he might be available. He needs sure. a new. He needs a new client. Maybe maybe he's pissed. Ghetto didn't book him into the main event of Wrestle Kingdom this year. It's like that's it. You're done. Uh, how how is this live? Wh? Because it seemed they were they were super hot into Ray um, throughout, and you know th- this felt like you know a cork and six man that I, I thought it was it, it worked out well. I think this is probably the most popular match outside of the main. Yeah, uh, for this crowd, they love Ray. Totally, they love Ray. Um, it's interesting. Like, I don't know if you saw on New Japan's website or their Twitter account that they showed tons of pictures of like all these T-shirts that they had brought to Japan uh, for his one appearance. Wow! Like mass, all these T-shirts. But here, you know, the funny thing about that is, is that the merchandise uh, like stand was not in Budokan Hall. It was in a different building, like across the road. Really? So. Yeah, I couldn't. I was thinking, oh, okay, during one of these undercard matches, I'm going to go buy maybe a race shirt or I'm going to go buy a, a, some merchandise, maybe the program. And then I looked and I'm like, I get back to my seat. I said, hey, Jojo, do you know where the merchandise is? He goes, dude, it's in another building. I'm like, where? He's like, across the street. I'm like, why the fuck would they do that? He's like, I don't know. This, this company is weird, dude. Like, but to be fair, there's no room in Budokan Hall in the hallways yeah. for merchandise section. It's it's really strange. And But I thought they would have had it outside the, the venue, like with all the like, other promotional stands, but they didn't have anything there. It was so bizarre. Like, I think I can't imagine how much money they might have lost from people not being able to buy T-shirts during, like, uh, matches that they didn't want to watch. You know, anything basically involving, you know, the, the Fale and the G.O.D., maybe. that Those are potential matches. Uh it was really strange. I, 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 so, hey, Ray, if you're listening, I want to buy a shirt, but New Japan fucked that up completely. Sorry. You know, going into the final, WH, I mean, every the G1 finals, it really is a one-match show. You're not going to be getting, the, like, this blow-away wrestling on the undercard. But I think people do expect, you know, storylines and surprises, and they really didn't have much of that in terms of uh, the undercard. I mean, we were throwing out all these possibilities yesterday, Um were you, were you underwhelmed with maybe some of the like the surprise elements on the undercard? Like this is a pretty by the numbers undercard heading into the main event. Yeah, for sure. I was expecting a Jericho video. I was expecting maybe even a video from Hiromu, or maybe he'd come out on you know like in whatever condition if he was able to with Lij. I was expecting maybe the return of Kojima. We didn't get any of that. It was really strange. Like by the time the main event started, I was like, "Wow!" I, I, you know, I was just commenting to people. I was like, "There's nothing happening." That like no, no returns, no, like you know, feel good surprises. Like like Shibata coming back was a really amazing feel good, uh, feel good surprise that they had. I think it was last year, wasn't it? And I, we yeah. didn't get into that. It's really, really disappointing. I have to say for myself. So we go to the finals with Hiroshi Tanahashi and Kota Ibushi, and. Uh, speaking of Shibata, he was there in Tanahashi's corner, and this audience really got into that. I thought it was just a great little addition to the match, having Shibata in one corner and Kenny Omega in Abushi's corner. This place was going nuts at the start of this match, and it was interesting how it began, because WH, it sounded like 
80% for Tanahashi, if not more. He truly felt like the sentimental favorite to win this, which wasn't easy to pull off given the fact that I think Abushi is a very sentimental figure to people too. And throughout the match, I think that would um, switch as well with more people getting behind Abushi. But at the start, it felt like a very pro Tanahashi crowd. I'm going to say even maybe it's 90% yeah. Tanahashi and 10% Ibushi, like in my section. So I'm uh, where the English commentary, I'm on the same side as the English commentary table in the upper decks. I'm going to say there's Tana, Tanahashi, Tanahashi, like just echoing, thundering. It seems like it's all around the arena. And then it would stop. And then there'd be like, oh, uh, Ibushi, Ibushi, like very small number of people. And then, then it would start up Tanahashi again, drown everyone out. I'm not going to say there wasn't any support. There was support for Ibushi. But I think the thing with his popularity with Ibushi is, is that he's fresh. He's a fresh guy. And he is someone that people really take to because he's such a great wrestler. But he's not a New Japan guy. He's always going to be thought of as a DDT guy. And there's, got, there's a large segment of fans. Um, if he's fighting other people he's going to be considered like a favorite and someone that they want to see go further in New Japan. But if he's fighting Tanahashi for such high stakes for the G1 climax, for the, for the, for the trophy, for the shot at the title at Wrestle Kingdom, I'm sorry, there's no contest. It's always going to be towards someone like Tanahashi. It's always going to be towards someone like, say, Nakamura. Uh, like the, I, I was not surprised necessarily by how popular, how more popular Tanahashi was compared to Ibushi. Uh, Early on, uh, the commentators, they were all setting the stage here. Kevin Kelly went through the butterfly effect of Tanahashi beating Ibushi at Power Struggle last year. How Cody then challenged Ibushi after that match and led to the Golden Lovers reunion coming out of that, the Bullet Club dissension. So you can trace it all back to this Power Struggle match and how it set the table for 2018 uh, New Japan booking. Then they explained how Tanahashi is viewed as a god to Ibushi, even though Ibushi is agnostic and does not attend church. Uh, Tanahashi introduced the Triangle Scorpion, which was a submission that Kengo Kimura used to use. And Chris was going into all past matches that had been collisions of ideologies in past uh, decades here at Budokan Hall with citing Jumbo Saruta and Masawa in 1990, Shinya Hashimoto and Jushin Thunder Liger when we had the heavyweight and junior heavyweight champions colliding and really just trying to tell the story of, you know, the the history of this building as well. Uh, Abushi teased a lawn dart early, which was a big spot from their 2015 G1 match, and Tanahashi was able to counter it early on uh, with them bringing up uh, how Tanahashi believes he lost the G1 that year because of that move affecting his neck. Uh, Abushi then stops Tanahashi from a skin the cat spot, lifts him up and hit this cradle tombstone that I had like an audible gasp as I watched this. And the replay showed that he did tuck his head pretty well, but came right down on his neck. This looked frightening uh, this early in the match. And then Tanahashi recovers and he hit this dragon screw in the ropes that I would argue got almost as big a reaction as this near crippling cradle tombstone, just the dragon screw and how the people reacted to it. And Ibushi was uh, then on the floor, took a standing high fly flow and made it back in at the count of 18. Tanahashi slapped him off the turnbuckle. And then Ibushi just instantly responds with the springboard hurricane Rana from the top. Just did it effortlessly. 
grabs the wrist for the Kamagoye, but Tanahashi is able to avoid, and Ibushi lands his first Bomae with their, where they bring up the influence of Nakamura being used against Tanahashi without actually saying Nakamura's name. And then they got into this striking exchange of palm strikes and slaps that were just deafening here. Tanahashi stands up. He's eating the slaps. His face is just conveying all sorts of pain. And he comes back with his own slaps. This was... I'm not a big fan of all these, like, super blasting each other's guys' uh, face with slaps. But my God, was this intense. Um, During this sequence, uh, what was the reaction like live, WH? It seemed like it was at a fever pitch. Oh, I mean, yeah. it Like, the place was going nuts. Like, there's so many... Tahashi fans just like just kind of like trying to transfer their their love of him to him to to withstand this attack from from Ibushi which a lot of people know like when he gets into that killer Ibushi mode it's tends to be like the match is going to be done or their his opponent is like going to get seriously fucked up so they're trying to will their support of him their love to him like with their chance and they're like seriously I People might think this sounds corny. I'm, I'm telling you, this is exactly what was happening. Like, there was so much support for him to try to survive this. And when he started hitting back, the place came unglued. It was amazing. It's such a great combination of the two because, like you said, WH, Ibushi uh, uh, is so great at, at, you know, essentially going, like, Super Saiyan level two here. When like, And he's so great at showing that. Whereas, like, Tanahashi is great at showing his will to withstand pain and punishment so the combination of the two of them doing all this was a fantastic moment of this match tanahashi comes back with a sling blade folding abushi's neck and then follows with a straight jacket german he goes to the top and this was an awesome shot because the camera is over kenny omega's shoulder as he's watching abushi laying prone on the mat as tanahashi climbs to the top as Omega is sensing that this could be it. And Abushi gets his knees up and he grabs his knees in pain because they had been worked on earlier on in the match. Hits a Bomaye and then does the standing moonsault, the Alexa Bliss special, uh, the other the other god he was channeling. As the he insult to injury. <laughs> drops the knees onto the chest of uh, Tanahashi here. It, and- it, it, it looked even... I, I mean, I think yesterday it looked pretty bad. This time, like... It felt like it was an actual like last last night he did it so that you you wondered if it was like a mistake if it was supposed to look that hard. Now this time it looked just as hard, but you could tell that this one was very intentional, and it's it just it gets a great reaction both nights. Uh, I think the replay was even worse because you could see like Ibushi hits him with the knees, and then he bounces, and then he yeah. hits him again. Yeah, yeah, he like he bounces so like the shins come down as well on the second one. But then he lifts up Tanahashi onto his shoulders. And I'm just saying, please get off his shoulders. Please get off his shoulders. I I can't even call this a lawn dart. This was a lawn fucking missile into the corner. And Tanahashi, this was nuts. This was just one of the craziest of crazy spots I've seen in this G1. And I know that's covering a lot of ground. This isn't quite the the power German that Naito took on his neck. But this was damn close. His neck just like folded into the corner. And if I'm going to critique, I don't think this was needed. I know it's a callback to a, a match that they had years ago. Ugh, I hate this spot, WH. It's just to me an unnecessary one. And the way his neck just 
like angled as it, as it hit on this impact. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I'm not a fan of it either. It's it's really hard to control. Uh, I it's I I think it's kind of like you can save it for some people. I don't think you should do Hiroshi Tanahashi. You yeah. know, it's just so risky. It, it's not it's not worth it ultimately. So I'm yeah. I'm with you on that, John. It was only the first of like a of a three act near fall setup because he followed with the power German and then a last ride power bomb. For the biggest near fall of the match, the place is incredible, uh, just electric. Shibata is yelling words of encouragement to Tanahashi. Once again, Tanahashi avoids the Kamagoye and hits a straight jacket German. But in doing so, Abushi has never let go of the wrist control. And Tanahashi is able to get up. He hits two consecutive twist and shouts and then a dragon suplex for a two. He's free of uh, Abushi's grip. He hits a high fly flow to the back. And then, as a standard, he goes back to the top. But by the time he gets up, Abushi has staggered to his feet. So uh, Tanahashi calls an audible, hits a standing high fly flow, and he goes up for a third high fly flow, hitting the proper version, and he wins the match in 35 minutes. Um, a phenomenal, phenomenal final. Um, yeah, way take it over. Really incredible. What a main event. Um, I mean, I think it's. It's often that like main events are uh, to me a little bit uh, like the culmination of a long tournament like this. That's that 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 has featured so many great matches. I mean, it's th- there's so much pressure for the main event to live up to uh, and, and to top. I think what a lot of uh, what came before. I thought this match came really close, and it might have been the best of the tournament, depending on your taste. I felt like it was a more mature match than many of the others that maybe I would include in the top 10 in that it relied on a lot more on, on Tanahashi's incredible fire. Uh, and it also made great use of Ibushi's incredible athleticism and his big moves at moments that I felt really maximized their value. It wasn't just a match of, you know, uh, like a lot of hard chops and a lot of hard slapping and incredible dives or anything like that. I felt it was a a safer version of that. Not to say that they didn't take risks because they took plenty of risk in this match, but I felt an appropriate amount for c- considering the, the circumstances. So great drama between the two baby faces, a very spectacular match to me. Uh, I, I believe we're probably going to rate these ones because this yes. was technically a block match. So I go double XL for this one. I wavered on whether or not I wanted to add a cream to it, uh, but with the coffee this large cream or not, doesn't make that much of a difference. It's still going to taste the same. So uh, it's not my match of the tournament, but it's right underneath that. Damn. I, I went double XL on this one. It was a phenomenal match. Uh, I will give my my rankings along with uh, WH and uh, Way in a, in a few minutes. But uh, WH, give us the, the live perspective of this match and including the post-match. We saw a close-up of a woman just shielding her face with a towel as she was in tears. You had Shibata lifting up Tanahashi on his shoulders, which to me was a visual I'd, I think I will always remember from this tournament of Shibata just lifting him up uh, and not giving him an electric chair, but just celebrating as Tanahashi has won now his his third G1. Well, I, I think we talk about the, the aspect of Shibata's involvement being in the corner of Tanahashi. For a lot of New Japan fans, like and myself included, like there is so much history between these guys, you have to remember that when they were ready to make, to go with from like the Nagata generation to the Tanahashi generation, there was three guys that they, ha- they were going to build the company around. It was Tanahashi, 
Nakamura and Shibata. And Shibata is the one who left. He, he left because he wasn't happy with his push. He left because he was more interested in MMA. He formed his own uh, splinter promotion, uh, Big Mouth Loud. That didn't go anywhere. He was bouncing around different promotions, like, say, Noah in Wrestle 1 in All Japan. And then he disappeared for a while. And then he finally came back. And one of the things that you heard about um, his coming back was that there was a lot of resistance from Nakamura and Tanahashi, especially because they said that we can't trust this guy. He left. Why, why are we letting him back in the company? And it took a while for like Shibata to finally sign a contract with him. And I think also to win over Nakamura and Tanahashi. And, and then from that point on, like you see this kind of, you know, in the ring, you saw them have a lot of great, great matches. And uh, Tanahashi was always critical of what he called the bachi bachi style, which is like the kind of hard hitting shoot style that Shibata was known for. But recently, like, you know, you know, Shibata had his injury. He retired from wrestling. And, and Tanahashi is being very supportive of him. And Tanahashi does a lot of like, you know, uh, interviews with him on New Japan World. And like, they're very, they, it looks like they've become very, very close. So him coming out and supporting him was such a big moment for me for so many longtime New Japan fans. So that just added another layer to how great this match was. And I think people were, were ready. Like most people were going to tell you, if you asked them, if you took a random sampling of people, you asked them, who do you want, who do you want to win? Not who you think was going to win, but who do you want to win? They would probably have said Tanahashi because he means so much to New Japan fans. And I think, you know, we have this idea that he's, he's lost so much. Like I think what Chris said earlier, uh, in one of the other commentaries he did was like, you know, one of his things is that he's defined by what he's lost this year. This is him now winning back what he lost. And it, it meant so much. And the, the live reaction to him winning was so amazing. Like, I'm so glad I endured like three days in Tokyo, uh, two nights before at, at Budokan, which were great. And then, you know, kind of a tiring undercard because I I already seen a three hour wrestling show and walked about 30 minutes in, in like really oppressive heat to get to the Budokan, but it was worth it. At the end of this match, it was worth it. I think a lot of people were like, it was worth coming to Budokan. It was worth, you know, dealing with the heat, trying to get there. Um, I I've, don't think there's too many moments I've, I've experienced that had genuine raw emotion like that. So it was amazing. Yeah, the, the post-match was just phenomenal. You had... You had the juxtaposition of Tanahashi and Shibata on top of the world with this win. And then Omega is consoling Ibushi. The audience applauds his effort and he just looks completely defeated. He bows to Tanahashi and then just like shakes his head and leaves. And as he gets to the ground, it's like it all hits him that it's over and he's devastated. His hand is just in his hand. His head is down in his hands and he just goes to the back like he's just like his career is over and Omega is just walking with him to the back. And then you cut back for the trophy presentation. And there is Masahiro Chono, Mr. G one himself, part of the ceremony to present uh, Tanahashi with the trophy and the flag. And Tanahashi addresses the crowd stating he's going to carry this company on his back, just like uh, days of old as he heads to the Tokyo dome, which is a very intriguing match with Kenny Omega and Hiroshi Tanahashi. That is penciled in now as your main event for Wrestle Kingdom 13, and I thought a fantastic end to this tournament. I don't think you could ask for a better ending here and a great story coming out of it with Tanahashi uh, looking to redeem himself after it looked like he had been, uh, you know, 
excommunicated from this IWGP title picture. Absolutely. I, I look forward to it. Um, I, I wonder how they will continue that story of uh, Omega and Ibushi, though, whether or not they will uh, save that for after Russell Kingdom, or maybe they'll do something beforehand because Ibushi did beat Omega. I really can only see... I- Omega, I certainly see him defending the title at King of Pro Wrestling, and I could see a second title match maybe in Long Beach, though I don't know. I could see maybe just one more title defense this year. Um, I, guess, I guess it depends if if you're going to go with one at one of the three destruction shows. It just seems that's a really quick turnaround to do a major match, especially a Bushi that I wouldn't want to see just, you know, trivially... Him or Ishii uh, being on one of those destruction at main events, I just think that's not really a a very big platform for a, a big match you could save. Um, another question, WH, for you is that you know they had two two of their three nights at Budokan Hall were were sold out. Uh, would you look at next year booking Budokan Hall for at least the finals, or do you think they'll just go back to their their home arena of Sumo Hall? Uh, because we we saw in the past the Cebu Dome. That was a pretty ambitious uh, step forward for the company and not really all that convenient for people to get to. But Budokan Hall, I think you have to look at it as a success, putting that many people in that building on three consecutive nights. I think they're going to have to run the Budokan from this from this point forward. One, it, I think it's a far more prestigious building than Sumo Hall. And that's a very, very prestigious building to run shows in. But... Budokan Hall is also actually very easy to get to. Yeah, I feel uh, on in, in Tokyo, it's like it, it intersects with several different lines. It's it's near Sudabashi, so it's near Korkin Hall, Tokyo Dome. Um, it, it's a lot easier than going to Ryugoku, which is where Sumo Hall is. Um, and the first night was not a success. It was like half full, from what I understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but last night and tonight. They, they were near capacity. They were sold out officially. I mean, I saw some empty seats, pockets of empty seats here and there, but it was full. I can't, I got to imagine they made way more money just from attendance alone, uh, like running it there for three nights than they would have at um, Sumo Hall. And I, I think one of the attractions of having it there was that no wrestling companies run there. And and to be able to see, you know, wrestling at Budokan, and I know, like, there are so many people who came from overseas who said, "Oh, I want to see it. I I've never seen a show at Budokan. This is and this is like I'm I'm one of those people. This is what attracted me. That I would, if it was Sumo Hall, I might not have gone because I I hate watching wrestling in that building in in the summer. And I've been there, and it's not that special to me. Budokan Hall drew drew like drew me to go buy three expensive tickets to, to see the show spend money on a hotel like and travel here and, and you know i had an amazing weekend but that was a drop going to that building and i think if they're smart about it and keep budokan special then it, it can be successful from here on in yeah yeah i'm very curious what they do next year i'm with you i think that now that you've established this and i, I think that this was a, a big success going to budokan for the for the final three nights uh, so let let's go to our before we go to those, John. I, I do want to uh, make some mention of of what I think was an amazing job by the English commentary team on New Japan World, but with uh, Kevin Kelly and Rocky Romero all show. Uh, they pulled off something that hadn't been done before, and that's English commentary for every show of the G One. And I mean, this team couldn't have come at a better time because I thought they killed it. Uh, Kelly, in fact, at the end of this broadcast, got really emotional on commentary and went on to talk about how this tournament 
was the highlight of his 28-year career. He really did great. Somebody who just, you know, clearly does as much research as he can for all these shows. So respectful of the company, its performers, and its culture. I think Rocky's also been fantastic, bringing in so much of his personal insight in, in his relationships with the guys. And the addition of Chris Charlton, who, I mean, we, we you know, uh, we're very biased. But at the same time, even if we didn't know this guy, if we didn't like him, uh, I think we'd all agree that he's been a wonderful addition, just adding a, a whole nother a layer of history and knowledge and great translations to uh, this whole broadcast. So I want to hear this three-man team call every English New Japan match if I could. Now, a lot of people were talking online and just, you know, raving about these three together. And it's kind of funny that this was an accidental announced team when you figure in that, you know, Don Callis wasn't available for the majority of this tournament, that uh, Rocky kind of got into that kind of like wingman role with Kevin Kelly and Chris Charlton was on board as, you know, one of, one of several translators and it's kind of morphed into this three man team, which is not kind of what you would have envisioned, um, you know, several months ago when you're planning the G1, it was just, well, Callus isn't around. So we're going to have these two here and then we'll, we'll just alternate between translators. And I think they've, they've stumbled upon a really great uh, three man team that I hope they explore more shows uh, with, coming out of this but that that was a big that was a big thing for new japan world to be able to pull this off and do english commentary for every show i think that helped probably a lot of people that some love japanese commentary some have a hard time following it without so that to me was a necessary thing for new japan world to do this year and i thought i'm with you i thought they pulled it off really well uh so it's like super late right now for WH, so let's go into our lists that we have put together for the end of the tournament, and then, uh, Way, maybe you and I can then do feedback after we uh, say goodnight to, uh, to WH as it's uh, approaching 2 in the morning for him after a very long day of wrestling. So do you want to start at the bottom of our list, Way, and we'll, we'll move our way up to the uh, – we'll start with the wrestler – that improved his stock the most. We have okay. uh, five categories here. So, uh, Wei, you start us off. The wrestler that improved his stock the most in the G1. Uh, yeah, this was sort of uh, almost a, a tough one for me because I felt like there were a lot of them that 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 could uh, gain from uh, that could be uh, awarded this uh, award. Do we have a name for this award? These awards? Oh, that improved his stock the most. Um, oh, or no, I mean, I mean, I just mean the G1 awards in general. How about how about the 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 G one E's award. I was trying to make a genie's uh, pun, but I'll, I'll work. I'll work on a name. Okay, maybe we'll come okay, up okay. with our uh, top three names right, for the okay, awards. Okay. So anyway, uh, I, I want to give some some shout outs though in this category to uh, Hangman Page, who I think uh, has you know like we talked about yesterday, he he's been tremendous in a lot of his performances, really taking advantage of the stage. Toru Yano has had some really surprising performances that, and I think in some ways reinvented himself with a lot of uh, great matches especially early on uh in in this tournament but my award for most improved uh would be juice robinson who i think um you know came off of the momentum of that cal palace show uh in a great way didn't have the best record of this g1 by any means but i think um stole the show with his uh promos backstage as well as uh uh telling a great story with that injured hand wh uh clearing away it's hangman page I think he came into this with like a lot of people thinking, oh, okay, they know they know who he is because of his involvement with the Bullet Club, but maybe they were questioning his involvement in the G1. But I think by the time he was done, no one was questioning like whether it was a good idea to include him. And I think 
a lot of people are looking forward to seeing him do more with New Japan Pro Wrestling in the future, like being booked on more tours and maybe even get, get a bit of a push in the future. Yeah, I think we're all on the same page. Pardon the pun. That was not intentional. Uh, that it came down to Hangman Page and Juice Robinson. I chose Juice. I think that just he had that great story throughout that he really made it work to, you know, he had this injured hand and he milked it for all it was worth. And while I will say that a year from now, if, I, if I'm putting money down on Page or Robinson as the the guy that will be further ahead, Eileen Page, I think that he's really set himself up for an incredible 2019, given that he's going to be someone that if there's this mass exodus of all his friends leaving, I think he's going to be looked upon as, as a major player. And I think regardless, he's going to get there at some point. And this tournament was a major step forward in his career. So my official pick is Juice with a honorable mention to Hangman Page. Uh, we now go over to the worst performer of the G1. I will start this one off. My choice was Bad Luck Fale, uh, which was neck and neck with uh, his stablemate. But to me, Fale, uh, like UWH, I came into this. Fale has had really good outings in the G1. He's never going to be the star performer or even in the upper echelon. But he can have a handful of really good matches that are sprinkled out. He has always booked strong. And this year, you had the added intrigue that here's a guy that's really uh, gotten in shape and was he going to show any kind of improvements, any n- new wrinkles to his game? I saw none of that throughout all of this. He was in many of my bottom matches. Uh, the booking certainly uh, kind of torched his prospects in this tournament as well. But I also felt that just as a, you know, the actual performances too, they left a lot to be desired. Um, let's go to you, uh, Way, with your worst performer. I smell a clean sweep for this one. Uh, I also have bad luck folly, and I think... I don't even think it really needs to be justified all that much, especially when we talk about our worst matches of this tournament. Um, I, I suppose, you know, certainly the gimmick didn't help, but the fact that what what prevented Tama Tonga from getting this, the role, I think, is at least that you would see some glimpses of, of decent wrestling in his matches, whereas with Fale, um, no, not, nothing really for most for the most part. Yeah, WH, are you going to surprise say, us? I- no, no, it's bad luck, Fale. You know, like I gotta say, like there's a there's a nickname coined over at Voices of Wrestling for him, Bad Match Fale. I think it's a very good nickname mm-hmm. for him. Um, he's just terrible. He's a terrible wrestler. I thought his match with Tanahashi was terrible, not just because of the booking, because he doesn't, he didn't know what to do with Tanahashi, and he he had a good match before, but that of course that's Tanahashi carrying him. For some reason, Tanahashi wasn't able to carry him this time. And I'm not blaming Tanahashi for that. That's not his fault. That's just bad luck by just became worse somehow. Like I was intrigued by like his story of losing a lot of weight because he seemed to be motivated to become a better wrestler. I, I maybe somehow losing all that weight made him a worse wrestler. It, funny enough. But yeah, no, he's he's terrible. I, I wish I hope he does not get into the G1 next year. I really wish you would be a little more candid with your responses, WH. We now move on over to the bottom five matches. Everyone's going to be talking about their favorite matches, but what were the five worst of the tournament? Uh, we have uh, we will start this one back with you, WH. Why don't you give us uh, from five all the way up to the absolute worst match of the this year's G1, which gets that prestigious award? Okay, number five is uh, Bad Luck Valet and Makabe. Number four is Bad Luck Fale and Tanahashi. 
Number three is Tamatanga and Kenny Omega. Uh, number uh, two is uh, Tamatanga and Zack Sabre Jr. And number one is Bad Luck Fale and Yoshihashi. Wow. Uh, Way, let's hear your list from five up to one. My number five was Bad Luck Folly versus Yoshihashi. I should I should uh, uh, say also I barely remember any of these matches. I just went by what I rated because I I, I try to shove these I think out of my brain uh, this, as soon as I, I start watching them. So number five, Folly versus Yoshihashi from day fifteen, and then from four to one I have number four, Tomohiro Ishii versus Tamatanga, and I'm sorry to put Tomohiro Ishii wow. in my company, but uh, that is from day twelve. Probably a match that just uh, featured another fuck finish and not not that much meat to it. I was probably very frustrated that day, too. Day 9 comes in at number 3 with uh, Bad Luck Fale versus Jay White. And then Day 7 with Fale versus Evil. My worst match, though, was from Day 11. Bad Luck Fale versus Togi Makabe. All right. My fifth uh, worst match was Hangman Page versus Bad Luck Fale from the first night. I think that was just the sign of things to come. Number four was Bad Luck Folly versus Togi Makabe from July 30th. Number three was Tamatonga versus Hiroki Goto from last weekend in Osaka. I was not on this show, but I cannot recall a G1 match that has ever fallen apart like this one at the end where they had the, the DQ was called, which was the actual finish. And these guys just were like uh, deer in the headlights, not knowing what to do. So we had to restart to do the exact same DQ finish that they had accidentally done. I just thought a total mess. Uh, number two, Bad Luck Fale against Jay White from July 27th. And my worst match, it came in right at the buzzer, Tamatanga versus Toriyano from Saturday, uh, August the 11th, uh, here at Budokan Hall. My worst match. So that's stuff you don't have to go check out. I think uh, all the matches that the three of us uh, chose, they all have some common threads to them. All right, let us move on now to some more positive topics. Our top three performers. Way, who are your top three? Yeah, this one was actually, uh, it kind of came down to the buzzer for me for this one. Because I had Tomo Ishii uh, at number one, I think, for the a, a good chunk of this G1. And I almost was already, you know, I shined up the, the award. I had the nameplate printed. I was all set to award it to him. However... These last two nights, uh, Kota Ibushi has been making a great case for stealing this thing. And uh, I'm just like, in putting together my top 10, I just see how often he appears within it. Uh, Ishida appears in a whole lot of it too, but but Ibushi, I think, has been a lot more mm, consistent in that he's been able to have spectacular matches with almost everybody. So he is my number one. Kota Ibushi, top performer of the G1, followed by Tomohiro Ishii. And rounding up the top three, I gave it to Kenny Omega. WH, your top three performers. Uh, probably it's very similar to Wei. So Ibushi is number one for me. I think, like in agreement with Wei, it's because of the last couple of nights. He's just kind of pulled up ahead of like Tomohiro Ishii. Uh, but at number three, my top perform, my number three performer is uh, Tetsuya Naito. Oh, wow. All right. Well, my top three, um, I, I think it this tournament, it's a story of 1A and 1B between Ishii and Ibushi. I'm with you, Way. Like, I looked at my my top 10 here, and Ibushi is in five of them, and Ishii's in four of them. And if I include my top 20, um, I mean, it really just, 
it's so narrow between the two. I went with Ishii as my number one performer. Abushi is number two. And I actually went number three. I went with Kenny Omega. I don't think he was the performer of the tournament. But I, I think when you look at his top end matches, you know, save for the odd uh, Tamatonga match that found its way in there. I mean, he had some pretty fantastic matches throughout this tournament. Zack Sabre Jr., Sonata, Goto, Abushi, of course. Naito was, you know, my front runner for quite a long time in this tournament as well. So I, I think that, uh, yeah, he was my pick for third uh, of my top three performers. And now we get to our top 10 matches. So uh, let's start with WH uh, and let's just go in ascending order from number 10. Okay, at number 10, I have Hiroki Goto versus Tetsuya Naito. Number nine is Zack Sabre Jr. versus Kenny Omega. Number eight is Goto versus Tomohiro Ishii. Uh, number seven is Michael Elgin versus Hangman Page. Number six is uh, Tetsuya Naito versus Kota Ibushi. Number five is Kenny Omega versus Tomohiro Ishii. Number four is Zack Sabre Jr. versus uh, Kota Ibushi. Number three is Kota Ibushi versus Tomohiro Ishii. Number two is Hiroshi Tanahashi versus uh, Kazuchika Okada. And number one, Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Kota Ibushi. Wow. wow. So it for you. the match of the tournament comes in on the on the final day. Wei, I'm curious to hear your list. Sure. At number 10, we have Tetsuya Naito versus Kenny Omega from day two. Uh, a match that uh, I think, uh, yeah, I felt came in very early. And I felt at that time was probably very tough to top. But here it is at number 10. And then at number nine, I have Ibushi versus Sonata from day eight. I thought a uh, great clash of very similar, uh, uh, I think, uh, handsome men. At number eight, Zack Sabre Jr. versus Juice Robinson from day 14. At number seven, Tetsuya Naito versus Kota Ibushi, also from that day 14 show, which was uh, probably my favorite show of the whole tournament. At number six, Hiroshi Tanahashi versus uh, Kazuchika Okada from the A Block final on day 17. At number five, Kenny Omega versus Kota Ibushi from the B Block final of day 18. Number four, Ishii versus Ibushi from day 10. And then uh, number three, Goto versus Ishii from day six, my front runner for most of this tournament. Uh, at number two, today's final, day 19, Tanahashi versus Ibushi. And then at number one, still my number one, is Kenny Omega versus Tomohiro Ishii from day 14. Wow. All right, for me, number 10 was Kazuchika Okada against Michael Elgin. I really enjoyed that match a lot. That was on July 30th, day 11. Number nine, Tomohiro Ishii and Hiroki Goto from July 21st. Uh, number eight was Kota Ibushi against Zack Sabre Jr. That was on the second day of the tournament, July 15th. Then number six, Kota Ibushi against Tetsuya Naito from day 14 in Osaka on August 14th. Number five, Kenny Omega against Kota Ibushi from day number 18. Then we have Tomohiro Ishii versus Kota Ibushi. Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Kazuchika Okada was number four for me, the draw that they just had the other night. Number three, Kenny Omega versus Tetsuya Naito from the second day. That one was in front for me for most of the tournament. Number two was today's final between Hiroshi Tanahashi and Kota Ibushi. And number one was Kenny Omega against Tomohiro Ishii from last weekend in Osaka. That was on August the 4th. So there you have it. Those are our top 10 matches. I highly encourage you to go check out any of our top tens, whether they uh, they match or or differ from each other's list, and feel free to post your own uh, picks from the various categories up at forum.postwrestling.com. Uh, that's going to do it for WH, who I want to thank very very much for joining us these last three nights uh, with his live perspectives from Budokan Hall. It's always great to have you on WH, and uh, thank you so much for uh, 
helping uh, add to these shows uh, immensely. No, thank you for having me on. I always enjoy talking with you guys. All right. So WH and I will be back in a, in a couple of weeks. You can, of course, follow him at WH Park 9. And now, uh, WH, you can go prepare for your G1 slash pro wrestling hangover after a very busy Sunday. Dude, I don't think I'm going to watch any wrestling for a week after today. <laughs> you got to detox now. That's, that's the key. Exactly. All right. Well, have a great night, WH. We'll chat with you soon. Thank you. Right, thanks, John. Thanks, Wade. So now Way and I are going to move on over to the forum and we're going to get some of your feedback to the show. We start off with Andre from Edmonton who states his favorite match was Zack Sabre Jr. against Naito from the B Block Finals. And he asks if I will be releasing my full list of matches that I have ranked from the G1. Um, Sure, I have my whole list here. So I've just uh, kept updating it throughout the tournament. So sure, I will post it this week up on the website. Matthew from Newcastle, UK. The G1 still cements its place as the best three weeks of consistent wrestling throughout the year. Ishii was by far the MVP of the tournament. I hope he has a competitive and fun title defense with Kenny Omega. Also, do you think we get Omega Tanahashi in the Dome, or will the cleaner drop the title before then? First of all, I don't think it was Ishii by far the best performer. I think it's razor close between Ishii and Ibushi. I think those are your two candidates. Um... I feel they'll do Omega and Tanahashi. I, I'm not very much into the whole prediction game of who's going to leave, who's going to stay, but I would think regardless that that's going to be your match at Wrestle Kingdom. Do you think any different way? Well, I don't see it being Tanahashi Ishii. Uh, I also don't see it being Tanahashi Ibushi, and those are your only options for people who might take the belt off of Omega. So I do see it being Kenny Omega versus Hiroshi Tanahashi at the yeah. Tokyo Dome. I'm sure they'll have Tanahashi defend his briefcase potentially at, at one of the shows in October or November, but I do not see him losing that. Like when they headline. Who, who would he lose it to? Well, that's, that's it. Better. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I don't have that, that option. Like I don't see, you know, Okada beating him or them even doing that kind of a match um, th- this coming fall. So I, I firmly believe that Tanahashi is headlining the dome and I believe it'll be with Omega. Scott from Toronto, this was my first time watching a G1 in full, and the whole experience blew me away. I understand this year's tournament was quite different with regard to the interference and cheating from the Tongans and Jay White, but overall, I felt it was a great introduction. His tournament MVP was Ishii. Favorite match was a tie between Naito versus Sonata and Ishii versus Goto. Two questions. I'm concerned the Harold May on-screen stuff with G.O.D. and Fale is is a misguided attempt to appeal to a more global audience. Do you see this happening more often, or did this feel like a test to gauge fan reaction? And he follows up. Do you see Gato eventually putting the title back on Naito for a long-term run? Uh, We kind of went over all the Harold May stuff that I feel they are very much um, playing with that as an idea to differentiate themselves in their heel role, but... I don't know. I, I don't see too many positives in terms of how they came off this tournament, nor have you created anyone that's approximating a, a main event level heel in that group. I guess we can't, you know, like if we look at from a notoriety perspective, I feel like more people probably know about Tamatanga or, 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 you know, because of all this uh, than people who maybe didn't know before, simply because he's been featured more. Uh, and he's been doing a lot of stuff online. But does it make anybody ever want to see a Tamatanga main event for even a Cow Palace show or a Long Beach show? I don't think so. Not at all. Do you see Gato eventually putting the belt back on Naito? I do see Naito being an ultimate destination that he will win that title in big fashion. Like where he's come up short against Okada at the Dome this year, in the G1 this year. 
I think I'm, I don't know if it'll happen within the year, but I think at some point Naito winning the title, I do feel they will, they will get there. All right, you're up. We up next. We have uh, this person who asked. This was a great G1 on so many great matches. After all that cheating by the Tongans, they finally do something significant to affect Kenny's G1, and then they cleanly win the Never Six Man titles. My favorite match was a tie between Kota Ibushi versus Hiroshi Tanahashi or Kenny Omega versus Ishii. He asks, uh, "When do you think Kota Ibushi will face Kenny Omega for the title?" Um, I don't. Do think you think it? it- do you think it happens in Japan or America? I think that that's a match to potentially do a really big show in the U.S. with. I think you could do that. I would not do that at Long Beach. I think that's way too big of a match for Long Beach. I don't think the thing is like these non-title wins, like they're designed to naturally set up programs, but it's not as though it's a you know set in stone that you get that match coming out of this. So it's very much something where they may not go to it. I don't see that happening this year. I don't think it should happen this year. It could be something for 2019, something um, down the road that you could do. And I think more so to even the quality of the match getting over, I think the fact that they sold out Budokan Hall with that match speaks volumes in terms of that being a main event level program to the Japanese audience. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I don't even really see them doing the Yano Omega match at this point. Simply, you know, number one, because there were so many shenanigans involved in that match that I could see them explaining it away that way. Uh, but the Ibushi one, I just don't necessarily see a good time for it if you're not going to do it at, uh, you know, uh, Wrestle Kingdom. So maybe in 2019, because uh, I would rather have them delay that match with a great story attached to it than to just throw it, throw it out there for, for the sake of doing it. Yeah. All right, next up is uh, Dustin from Maui. I just wanted to thank you all for the hard work. Brad, WH, and especially Chris Charlton. And then Omega Ishii will always be my go-to match. Question, is Harold May the actual president of New Japan World, or is he synonymous to Jack Tunney? No, he is a legit um, executive with the company. And, oh, he also brings up the Being the Elite episode. Do you want to mention uh, what was announced on the, uh, the most recent episode that dropped today? Yeah, so they shot, uh, the Bucks shot this, uh, like, last night, basically. Wow. Like, after the Ibushi Omega match. And it was just uh, backstage with the two of them. I haven't seen the whole episode yet, but it was the Bucks backstage uh, about to announce Kenny's uh, all-in match. And they teased that um, they were going to put him in the main event. And then they downgraded it to the semi-main, uh, ultimately announcing that his opponent would be Pentagon Jr., like I think a lot of us uh, assume that that it would be. Kenny Omega versus Pentagon Jr. Now, with the, like, I don't, because of, like, all they're talking, I don't exactly know if that's going to be the main event or if it'll be something else that they'll announce or if something else that they've already announced that they will shove up to the main event. I just, uh, you know, do you feel like that's a, that's, that's you know, a satisfying uh, a headlining show, match for that card? Yes. Yes. I think you could put that on last. I've said before, I think from a story perspective, I think you have a really solid story in Cody going for that NWA title, but that's following a lot on this show that you could, you could certainly argue that the safer bet is putting Omega and Pentagon on last, which I think certainly can headline that show. That, that audience will be insane for that match. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, I I think uh, Pentagon to this audience is is a definitely a big enough star, and I think it's a great like I mean for Pentagon that 
that stage, even more so than anything to do with Impact, uh, being able to headline a show as as buzzed about as All In, I think is is going to be really great for him. It's also a little thing, but you know, you had everybody assuming that was going to be the match, and I think it tells you something about their thinking in that we've got this hot match, it's a fresh match, and yeah, everyone's expecting it. It would have been very easy to say, let's just shock everyone and do something different. And instead, they just they knew they had this match and they weren't worried about trying to swerve people, which I think that's always a good sign when you're looking at companies that, yeah, your your best ideas are not always going to be swerves and surprises. Sometimes you just do the expected thing and everyone's happy about it. And it's mm-hmm. the best choice to make. We have one last piece of feedback here. Yeah, finally, we got an MJ from NJ who says, first and foremost, a huge thanks to all of you, Chris Angler, and a special shout out to a friend of the cafe, Chris Charlton, for being a superb addition to the G1 experience. Maybe it is the recency bias, but I felt all three main events at the Budokan were of five-star quality. The final proves why Tanahashi is the ace. Maybe a controversial opinion, but I viewed his in-ring akin to John Cena with his five moves of doom. After last night, I've completely come around on that opinion. He's tremendous. The shots he took from Ibushi and that hulked up lockdown he did backing Kota into the corner had me shaking my head in disbelief. What a slap box fight. Tremendous match that had just about everything in it. A truly memorable final after two extremely well done and emotional block finals. Kevin Kelly is the best commentator in pro wrestling today. The work he has put in, the passion for the company that comes through, his ability to his ability to make you invest in the history behind the matchups. I could not imagine watching this match this much wrestling without him. I'll continue to preach his work as he just doesn't get the credit he deserves because the access shows do not feature him. He's top of the class. I've come to, well, I mean, access hires their own team. So, I mean, it's not so much, you know, their judgment of his performance. I have to come to adopt the motto, in Gato we trust. The booking of New Japan never ceases to play out in ways that make you excited for what's next. Kenny and Tanahashi is fresh in a direction I didn't expect, but will Kenny still be champ? If Ibushi and Kenny aren't at the Dome, then where? If Okada and Naito are penciled out of the Dome, what will happen, and how will Jericho play into it? And how does the booking at the Dome play into the booking at the Garden? Those are just a few of the questions I was just thinking that came out of the final few nights in this, but in reality, so much has been set up and so many directions can be taken. Other notes from the final night, I was curious to see Cody get positioned as a challenger to Juice, despite Juice already having a long list of challengers, and I'm still kind of disappointed Ray isn't being used for marquee singles matchups. Well, I think that this was just getting Ray in while they could. I don't expect Ray to be at their... is not going to be available for too much longer. I mean, if you just... Look at where things are are going towards him. I think most people anticipate him in some form or fashion being involved with WWE because otherwise, I'm with you. There's tons of stuff you could do with Ray on this roster. I think that could keep him busy for a long time. And if I was New Japan, I'd be really aggressive about trying to compete and get this guy because he mean, he would mean a lot on those U.S. shows where you don't have a Chris Jericho that's necessarily available every show and that Ray uh, used with the right people like like, wait, you could literally headline Long Beach with Okada and Ray, I feel, without much problem. For sure. But, I mean, you also have to think about maybe what the price tag, somebody like a Chris Jericho or a Rey Mysterio who might not be too far from from, from that Jericho price tag, um, how much they're asking for versus maybe how you would do without somebody like them. Is it worth that type of investment? All right. Well, thank you to everybody for your feedback and a big thank you to everyone that has tuned in to 
Uh, whether it be all of the shows that we've done in the G1, whether you've checked out a couple of them, we really appreciate everyone uh, that is tuned in. Uh, this was a real big success for us uh, internally here at Post Wrestling, and that was all because of you. And a uh, big thank you to Wei Ting, who did every single G1 show. It was way more enjoyable having someone to talk to this year rather than being in a in a room by myself talking about all these matches by myself. So a big thank you to Wei Ting. Well, thank you for the opportunity, and thanks for uh, encouraging us to to do this. Because uh, I don't think we would have the reputation that we have for our any of our uh, Japanese wrestling coverage if you didn't do this yourself five years ago, however long ago, and you've been doing it by yourself. So I appreciate all the legwork you put into all that. And I also want to give a big thank you to Chris Angler for running our very successful post wrestling G One Climax Twenty Eight contest. Uh, there were over 750 of you who entered, and at the very top of it, we announced all the winners and results on yesterday's review, but if you haven't heard those yet, you can always go to postwrestling.com slash G1 in order to check out the thread and uh, Chris's update, but I want to give a quick congratulations to coming in third place, Sanru22, at number two, Guillermo Brazil, and at first place of our G1 contest, Nick XD. So you've all been contacted. You'll be receiving your prize packs. Uh, I hope to do it again next year. So that's going to wrap it up for us. Way and I will be back on Monday night with Rewind a Raw. And if you are a new member of the Post Wrestling Cafe and you checked in here for the G1 coverage, uh, Way, do you want to let people know what's coming up this week? Because we have several shows that will be on the Post Wrestling Cafe. Yeah, first of all, if you if you're you if you are curious and if you aren't a member of the cafe yet, we did shows for all 19 of these G1 uh, uh, shows. So if you have the time to go back and rewatch any of them, maybe some of the top tens that we've mentioned, and if you want to hear our reviews from that day of them, they're all available in the archives, as, along with all of our rewind aways, uh, our MCU reviews thus far, which will continue later on this month. Uh, our ask aways, all of the bonus content, all of our double shots. So we're doing a whole lot now for the for the six dollar uh, one milk one one sugar feed. Uh, so you can sign on for that. For double double patrons and above, we do weekly videos called post production. And typically, these started off as kind of our our you know behind the scenes video blogs talking about maybe our weeks. Uh, now that our, our our project here has kind of uh, come into a bit more of a stable uh, form. We kind of have uh, evolved that video into just basically anything, anything interesting we can think of to do on video. And this past week, we released a audio commentary, video commentary track of John and I sitting down and rewatching the Budokan match from 2012 between Kenny Omega and Kota Ibushi. Uh, we enjoyed that thing so much that we decided to make it free for everybody to enjoy and to experience and see what they liked and give us some feedback themselves. So you can go check that out at our YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash postwrestling. You just play the video, you uh, open up the match in another window, and you sync the two up according to the time code that's posted in our video. And you can watch that match with us. And you can let us know which match did you enjoy more. Their G1 match or their match from six years ago. So we got all that coming out. Uh, the double shot is now occurring on Tuesday nights after SmackDown. We'll be talking about being the elite. John might even bring back his review of uh, Lucha Underground. Which received a great response from uh, those of you, surprisingly. And I've got, who, a, uh, I've got a book review this week. 
Wow, wonderful. So all that on the, on the double shot. And then on this Friday's Rewind Away, we return with a review of WCW Bash at the Beach 1998. This is a choice from our uh, executive producer, uh, Thorsten Vendomuth. So do check out that. Uh, do check for that. Up next is back on Thursday for the Go Home Show to NXT Brooklyn. And then they will actually be back either Saturday or early Sunday with their review of TakeOver. And also Eggshells. Man, where our roster is just stacked. Our roster is just stacked this week. Eggshells, currently on the free feed, which you're uh, listening to right now. If you go back to yesterday's release, we have a new edition of Eggshells with New Japan commentator and translator Chris Charlton. He's hosting a show talking about 1996, I believe, in professional wrestling in Japan at the Tokyo Dome. He is joined by Chris Charlton. Or sorry, he's joined by Damian Abraham, our other good friend, uh, talking about that. And then next week, I believe joining him is Nate Milton. So all of our friends up here at the Post Wrestling Cafe. Yes, and it's a it's a very busy week, as most weeks are. Uh, it'll all lead up uh, reviews of TakeOver next weekend and SummerSlam on Sunday night. Uh, so lots and lots of stuff to check out at postwrestling.com and postwrestlingcafe.com. That wraps up our coverage of the G1 Climax from 2018. Thank you for listening, and we'll speak with you on Monday night.